with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 423. It is Friday, 423-2010, and fortunately for me, because this is annoying me, this will be the last day when the date and the number of the show are identical at least unless it kind of comes back together sometime in the future. Hopefully it won't. Anyway, folks, I know some of you liked that. You thought it was cool. It's uh, it's distracting for me. Anyway, uh, moving on, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about something that's kind of a somber subject. Uh, I think some of you guys will really be into this subject, but uh, maybe not by the time I'm done with it. We're going to talk about situations where you actually have to use deadly force. And the other side of that. And some of the things that I guess no one talks about, no one digs into, no one considers psychological, legal ramifications and uh, questions that you need to ask yourself. And things that you need to think about so if you're ever in that situation, you're prepared to deal with it by whatever is the best choice for you. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, silverandgoldshop.com. That is the place to go find all your cool silver and gold stuff. Uh, it delivers what it promises. Run by Mary Beth Maidmont. Used to be known as TeaPartySilver.org. Now silverandgoldshop.com. Check them out. Uh, they have some really beautiful coins. They really do. Some really beautiful silver rounds. And I've taken to uh, every time I have to buy something for a birthday present or you know anything like that for my niece and nephew, I go out find a new silver round and give it to them so that they have something of lasting value. When I first came up with that idea, my uh, my wife was like, I don't know if these kids are going to want this stuff. You know what? They love it because it's something different than they get from everybody else, and it's giving them a long time uh, lasting knowledge of value. I'll also tell you that I probably own just about everything those folks sell in my own personal collection. And they give you great service. So do consider doing business with Mary Beth over at silverandgoldshop.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, James Jaeger with Tactical Response Gear. James is a great guy, and he's been all over the world, and he has seen for himself some of the things that we're going to talk about today. I'd say he's much more exposed to them than I am, and because of that, he's put together a great gear shop with some of the best tactical gear and equipment you could possibly need for civilian use, law enforcement use, or military use, depending on your individual needs. So check out Tactical Response Gear, and if you want to take things up a notch, check out tacticalresponse.com for some of the best training available in the world on how to defend yourself and how to use lethal force if necessary. Moving on from there, I want to remind you, check out our gear shop. We have a pretty cool one. We've got some cool stuff in there, shirts, uh, hats, uh, coins, things like that. I think the coins are just about gone. I keep saying that, but I haven't talked to Sis this week, so I don't even know if there's any left, but you might want to check that out today. But do check out our gear shop, and uh, be proud that you are part of the Survival Podcast community. Do not be, uh, what do you call it, an uh, incognito survivalist. Be proud to be a survivalist. Uh, the more of us there are, the better we'll deal with any situation that comes around. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, including discounts, members-only videos, and a bunch of other really cool stuff, and I'll leave it at that today. One more thing before I get done with the housekeeping section today, I want to remind you one more time because the month is coming up to an end soon. From now until the end of the month, the Berkey Guy is running a contest to give away a bunch of free Berkey stuff. You can find out how to join on our forum. I'll put a link to that post in today's show notes. And with that, we've wrapped it up, and we can go on into uh, the main topic today, which, again, is thoughts on the use of deadly force. I want to talk to you about this because, well, part of it is I watched Red Dawn last night. And um, if you guys think I'm one of these Red Dawn freaks, you haven't been listening to the show long enough. I think Red Dawn is uh, an entertaining but on some levels a terrible movie, uh, totally inaccurate and... Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit more in a second. I'll even talk about the new version that's coming out. Um, but I'm all these guys that watches this and goes, yeah, one day, man, that's going to be me. And I, I, I want to talk to you about why you shouldn't think that way. But I want to talk to you, apart from that, just two Hollywood myths uh, that are never really discussed. 
There's a lot of myths in Hollywood that are discussed in the tactical community, but these two uh, I, I don't really ever hear about uh, in, in many discussions anyway. Occasionally, I guess if I hadn't heard about them at all, I wouldn't be talking about them. But the, the first one is the myth that killing someone is actually relatively easy to do, that one human killing another human being is easy. And what I mean by that is these movies where a guy sneaks up on another guy and in two-tenths of a second snaps his neck and he's dead, he falls to the floor. Or that one person just in a, in a fight happens, you know, it's a lady being attacked by an intruder and she sticks a kitchen knife into the guy and he just falls over and dies. It's not that those situations cannot occur. It's not that those situations have never occurred. It's not that there's not people out there that are trained uh, in, in specific ways to take life that can't reach up behind somebody and break a neck like that. It's not that the occasional housewife being attacked by some kind of scumbag might not get lucky and plunge a butcher knife into a perfect place. But the reality is that one human being killing another human being is actually a very difficult thing to do, especially in close quarters combat. Now, if you've got a person that doesn't know you're there, standing 10 feet away from you and you have a shotgun, the physical act of killing is actually quite easy at that point. You have a superior weapon, a weapon capable of taking life, and if you have any ability to point accurately into the torso whatsoever, the mechanics of killing are easy. I'm going to hold off on that because that's the next myth. But when a person knows you're trying to kill them, no matter how more of a, a fighter or how better trained you are than them, there's a certain thing that happens in the mind of the two individuals. It's him or me. And at that point, with that heightened awareness and that heightened confrontation, killing is not easy. And Hollywood has led us to believe that killing is easy, both psychologically and mechanically. And right now I'm talking about the mechanics of it. It is not easy to kill another human being who does not want to die. Again, unless you are at a distance where you can use a weapon and that individual is unaware of your intention to shoot them. Anything else, and it actually is quite difficult. So what's the other myth? This one will shock you. That killing people is difficult. And, and what I mean by that is you see these confrontations in these movies where the guy's been shot like six times, he's been beat up, he's had his arm broken. Maybe he's been stabbed once or twice and he's still going. That, that shit, folks, doesn't happen. I'll tell you right now that that does not happen. There are there are there's a, a kind of a middle ground that Hollywood doesn't want to cover, and it's because it doesn't make good movies. It's not exciting. It's what I talked about when I talked about dealing with violent confrontations in the, in, the, in the last show that I did that was sort of like this one. After spending some time with Valerie Azanoff shooting the new DVD series, uh, Ballistic Striking. Um, when you watch, let's say, a UFC fight, compared to, if, if you're old enough to remember this, there was a great old movie with Clint Eastwood in it called Any Which Way But Loose, where he was like this fighter, you know, like this, you know, basically like a, a, a back, back, back alley fighter. And, and those fights in those movies, or the Bruce Lee movies, or any of them, where you see these fight scenes, then go watch two highly trained professionals fight each other. And you can look at boxing and go, well, of course, that's different. They have gloves, and they have these rules, and they can't grapple. And But go look at the UFC. UFC, while not directly analogous to a real-world fight, a real-world confrontation, because two trained individuals, referees, still some rules, right? You tap out, you quit, you're over. The guy doesn't try to cut your throat once you quit. And there's no none of his buddies are going to walk up behind you and kick you in the kidneys while you're fighting him. So... UFC doesn't really look like a real fight. I'm sorry for some of you that are going to be upset about that, but it doesn't. Because it's not a real fight. It's two trained professionals engaged in a sporting activity that involves combat. And that's different than a real fight. No one's hitting anybody with a stick. Nobody's throwing any dirt in anybody's face. Nobody's bushing a beer bottle over anybody's head. Nobody's pulling out a knife. No one, once they have somebody in a chokehold, is going to choke them until they stop breathing. No bouncers are going to get involved. No law enforcement officers who see what's going on and you're in a superior position but you were attacked are going to mistake you for the original attacker. It's not the same. But it does teach us a reality that what we see in Hollywood is not real. Because a UFC fight, even a really great one, looks nothing like any Hollywood fight scene you've ever seen because it doesn't sell the same way. 
you look at the closest thing to Hollywood fight scenes is the nonsense of what they call professional wrestling, which they should call professional wrestling acting. You know, the guy gets hit with a chair, he gets back up, he jumps off a, a freaking cliff or whatever, you know, onto a guy on the top of a cage. Guy gets, you know, beaten down to the ground where he's almost beat, kicks out at the last second, comes back and wins. That's Hollywood. And that has led us to believe that dying is something that takes a lot of work to make happen. So, even though they sound in conflict, you have two myths. And these two myths are definitely in the psyche of the average American who's going out to buy his next gun or buy his next knife or take his next martial arts class. That that's what combat is like, and it is not like that. It's quick, dirty, nasty, especially at close quarters, and especially when the other person knows that you're a threat. And here's the thing that you're going to have to think about all the way through today. If you are an honorable person, 99 times out of 100, the other person will know you're a threat. And what I mean by that is, sure, if you're a scumbag and you just want somebody's wallet, you can walk up behind them, put a gun to their back, shoot them in the, in the liver from behind, reach in their pocket, pull away their possessions, and walk away. They never knew you were a threat until the gun went off. It could be a small caliber handgun pressed against their back, make almost no noise, and somebody ten feet away might not even know what happened, and they're not looking directly at you. But in an altercation where you are legally justified to use force or lethal force, specifically that we're talking about today, the person would be the attacker. By being the attacker, they know you're a threat. About the only time, and we'll talk about this in a bit too, that you would be in a situation where the attacker doesn't know you're a threat is when you're the good Samaritan standing by. And you better make damn sure you're doing the right thing there. I'm going to make you think about being that good Samaritan today. You see a guy beating the hell out of another guy on the floor. You pull out your gun. You shoot that guy. You know? How do you know that guy wasn't defending himself? How do you know that guy's not in danger right now? you got to think. And if you're the guy in the confrontation, you have to think too. We talked about that in the other episode, so I won't go that deeply into it. But it is absolutely imperative when you're, you know, even mentally simulating these situations, you keep the reality close at hand. So, again, I want to reiterate that. About the only time that you'll be in a superior position from a standpoint of surprise is the classic, you know, horrible massacre situation where you're sitting in a restaurant or a church, for God's sakes, which happened here, and some maniac comes in and just starts shooting people. And you don't happen to be one of the people he shoots at first. At that point, especially if you're behind them or break the 90-degree plane with them, you have a superior position of ambush, and it is legally, and to be morally, responsible to take it. But that would be the exception. In most altercations that you would ever end up in, you're either going to come into the altercation too late to be absolutely sure of who the aggressor is, or you're going to be the person that's being attacked. And in either situation, you give up that tactical superiority of surprise. And that's why the criminal always has an advantage. Now, if you're a military person and you're setting up an ambush, fine. Different world. Killing is your business. This show is not really for you. If you're a military person that's also moving back into civilian life now and think what you learned about ambush applies now, this show is for you because it doesn't anymore. You take the uniform off and you, you go get your carry permit or if you're in a state that actually loses freedom and you don't need one and you carry and you're walking around armed, gun and knife or just physically stronger than other people, the, the rules you learn there can help you. They give you a, a serious advantage over the untrained. But many of them no longer apply. You don't set up ambushes for burglars. You don't mount claymores outside of a house in a nice neighborhood and hope a burglar shows up so you can set them off. Different world. And that's where I want to talk a little bit about the fantasies of the Red Dawn types. I watched that movie last night, and it's a great old movie. And like many of you that are my age, I grew up when that movie was a big movie. But a lot of it is just nonsense. You have this group of kids running around on a mountaintop that overlooks the town, and you have an, a huge Russian uh, army contingent that can't find them. 
Now, there's people that would say, hey, look at, look at the insurgencies in places like Afghanistan and how long that, that those things had lasted, etc. Yeah, but those people move. They don't stay in one place and they blend back into society. These were people living out on the mountains in a group where anybody doing that was already a target. Uh, that little insurgency depicted in that movie would have lasted all of about two days at maximum. Uh, they, the, you know, the end of the, toward the end of the movie, they have an attack where a few hind helicopters come in. Um, nobody would, nobody in that scene would have actually gotten away, and they would have brought those helicopters in a hell of a lot earlier. This, uh, and despite the movie itself, the entire concept that someday you with your black rifle are going to run out into the woods as part of a defense force for our nation, you know, I'm not saying it can't ever happen. I'm not saying if this country were ever invaded that I might not be there at your side. But I'm saying that's not what you need to be focused on because you're a hell of a lot more likely to have some scumbag try to take your life tomorrow over 50 bucks. It's one in a million that that scenario could ever go down that way. And if it did, if you conducted yourself the way the kids in the movies did, you'd end up dead. You'd end up dead. Now, well, I want to say at least a little bit because I know it's a topic for the for the for the people in this this mindset. There's a new movie coming out, and I think it's going to be in November. Uh, remake of Red Dawn. I hope it's a better movie. I hope it's better done cinematographically. Uh, I hope that I mean some of the way those people shot in that movie was just ridiculous. Now, it was one thing when they were doing it when they were brand new and really didn't know what they were doing. But like the guy at the end when the Heinz coming at him that comes out and holds the, the, the AK down at his hip and fires from the hip at a hind while it's approaching. That was just dumb. So I hope they do a better job than that. I hope it doesn't have the uh, unintended consequence of creating more people that believe in that fantasy. But I just wanted, if you're one of those people, wanted to speak today, and any other movie like that, those movies are not reality. Because they ignore the first two myths. Killing is hard, and killing is easy. They also really ignore the most important thing, that I think we all need to be aware of if we're ever gonna, if you're gonna put a gun on and walk out the door and walk around armed or carry a knife or carry any tool capable of unleashing death, including being physically trained to kill somebody with your hands if you had to. If you're gonna have the ability to cause death, you better get in touch with this myth and you better get in touch with it right now or you have no business out there carrying. And before you get upset with me, remember what I've said before. I believe that every American that can carry should carry. I believe whatever legal you know hoops you have to jump through, you should go do it. You should get a permit. You should get trained and you should carry. But you better get in touch with this one too. There is no glory in death for the killed or the killer. You know, we talk about people that died gloriously in battle. Death is not glory. Death is dirty. Death is messy. Death is disgusting. Death is revolting. Death is wishing to God you hadn't made the decision at the last second before your life slips away. And wishing to God you could still be there for the people that you love and care about. And I'll say it, just so it gets into your head and shitting yourself as you die. Because that's what death is. Death is moaning. Death is regret. And that's if you're the one that's killed. And in some ways, death can be worse for the person that does the killing, even when it's justified killing. It will never go away. It will never leave you. And even if there was no other way out, even if you did the right thing, even if 99% of your psyche feels like, I did a good thing, there will be 1% that will haunt you like a ghost for the rest of your life that says, you killed a man. Or you killed a woman. There's no glory. There's only living and dying. There's only continuing or not continuing. And anything that tells you otherwise is bullshit. Period. End of story. And if you're not willing to accept that right now, don't be armed. If you think there's glory in death, or if you think there's glory in causing death, you need to do some soul-searching before you empower yourself to cause it. That may be my opinion. That may not be law. But I'm going to ask you to ask yourself those questions today. 
Are you willing to accept that fact? And if you're not, you got some soul searching to do. I also want you to understand something else. I think that it is wonderful to be armed. I do not want to be misconstrued in any way during this show at any point in time. I think walking around and having a, a loaded, ready-to-go handgun concealed on your body, having the skill and the knowledge to draw down and use it quickly and effectively, having the mental prepared state to get beyond the fact that there is no glory in death and take action anyway when your life or the life of someone else who is innocent in the conflict depends on it, I think that is all great. But I want you to understand something. That gun, for many people, is an extremely false sense of security. And it goes back to the first myth. Killing is not as easy as it looks on TV. Not just mentally. We'll get to that. But mechanically. You know, if you have someone trying to attack you, causing you imminent danger, getting the gun out and firing it accurately is not as easy as you might think it is. And I don't care how many times you've stepped on a rifle range... Walking in semicircles, reloading, and dealing with malfunctions. Conflicts don't look like that. I'm sorry, they don't. Conflicts are you go for your gun and the guy goes for your hands. Conflicts are you're pulling the gun out while the knife's going into your guts. Conflicts are you're shot at and possibly hit before you know you need to shoot back. Remember, we're not the scum. They are. Remember, you don't go out looking for a fight. You go out hoping there isn't one. You don't go out to rob people. You don't go out to rape people. You don't go out to murder people. You don't go out to kill people. You don't go out to intimidate people. You don't go out to terrorize people. You go out to live your life. Your opponent does all of the things that you don't do. You are at a disadvantage. You are always at a disadvantage. And as long as you have morality, you are at a disadvantage. And that is reality. And does that mean you give up your morals? Absolutely not. But it means you better come in touch with the fact that your morals are a disadvantage. Because the scumbag will kill you before you get a chance to return fire. Don't let the gun make you overconfident. And don't let the gun and training make you overconfident. Situational awareness is what you need. We've talked a lot about it in the past. I'll talk about a little bit about it today. The only way that you're going to be able to implement that weapon in a defensive situation is to be highly aware of what's going around you at all times so that you perceive the threat before it's fully realized. And what that allows you to do is not draw down because what will happen is sooner or later that heightened situational awareness is going to get you in trouble and some guy pulling out a Bic is going to have the end of a Glock looking at his nose and you're going to take a trip down to a place they call jail and it sucks there. Even if you don't shoot him. That's not how situational awareness works. You're not a police officer in the middle of a bust. You're a human being in the middle of a normal life where 99.9% .9 of the time nothing is ever going to go wrong and the one-tenth of one percent is the part that will get you killed. And hopefully you'll never experience it because the odds are long, but if they do, you're ready for it. So what situational awareness allows you to do is begin to immediately move to a defensive position. Get off the X before you're fired at. If you see something that doesn't look right, you position yourself in a place, not as an interferer, but as an observer. And these are the situations where you can gain tactical advantage. Without the situational awareness, that knife can be a more deadly weapon when you're two feet away from somebody than your gun. It's quicker to draw, it's quieter. And the person behind the knife is more willing to kill you than you are them. Because you're willing to kill them when you feel threatened. They're willing to kill you because they want you dead. You're always at a disadvantage if you have honor. But have honor anyway. Because the honor can be turned back into an advantage. I don't want you to misconstrue that statement either. That morality is a, is a liability. It's the biggest asset you can have as a human being. But there are places where it can be used against you. And that is simply, you know, a situation where the attacker isn't using your honor against you. He's using the general honor of society against society as a whole. He's going out and picking a victim based on the fact that most people would never act the way that he did. 
So he has the element of surprise. It's that element of surprise that I mean when I say your honor is a disadvantage. Because you won't do that. The next thing is an understanding of some things that I think gets talked about in the military. It gets talked about in tactical training. But I don't think most people are aware of it. And it's part of what I was just talking about with situational awareness being combined with this. And that is cover, concealment, and movement. Shooting a person, <clears throat> even at, oh, I don't know, 10 meters, 30 feet, isn't really that hard to do. The human body is actually quite large. If you think about a hunter that's out shooting something, a small game animal like a rabbit or a squirrel, and you have a kill zone generally you'd look at with a rifle shooting the head about the size of a walnut. A walnut, you know, a walnut, you can hit a certain part of a human being's heart, not just the heart as, a, as an organ as a whole. You look at a human being and you look at our kill zone, and you're looking, you know, basically from the liver up to the top of the head, where you have the potential for uh, a one-shot kill, uh, even if the person doesn't go down immediately, that the shot will be lethal, and you have a high potential with multiple rounds or larger caliber weapons or more powerful weapons of making a one-shot drop kill. That whole area, that's a pretty large area. And if you look at our bodies from points where we can receive damage, we have our arms, our legs, our shoulders, and kind of the outer peripheral of our torso. And in, even in those areas, we have areas where if we take a shot, um, not that a person would maybe aim for it, but if it happens to be hit, we would die very quickly. Classic case. Generally speaking, being shot in the leg seems like something that, you know, you can recover from. If you get medical treatment and as long as you're not shot again. Not if it's a femoral artery. You can bleed out amazingly fast with a shot in the femoral artery. So what that means is that the, the human body is a giant target. And that if you're ever in a situation where bullets are flying, the first thing you need to do is move. Now, you might be drawing your weapon to return fire, but you move first. And there's two things that are, your, are to your advantage in that situation. One is cover, and the other one is concealment. Concealment does not stop bullets, but it stops the opponent from seeing you, or seeing you well. So that maybe he can shoot it in your direction, but he doesn't know exactly where to shoot. And it might be the difference, not between being shot or not being shot, but between taking one up high in the shoulder or in the leg and hopefully not being hit in the femoral and taking one center mass in the chest. So concealment is, you know all the cops you see get out and they sit behind a car door? That's concealment. Because a bullet will go through a car door like butter. Another Hollywood myth. If there's bushes, getting behind bush, light bush, that's concealment. In a restaurant, throwing tables over, getting behind a table... That's concealment. It may provide some limited cover. It'll slow down a bullet, but you've got to look at it as concealment. Cover is something that not only conceals you, but prevents the penetration of ammunition. So a solid wall, brick wall, that's cover. Unless the guy's got a 50 cal. We're not talking about that today. Right? Solid piece of steel. You know? There's, there's actually very little cover in a restaurant or a shopping mall. But if you spot it, know it's there in advance with situational awareness, good place to get to. Using concealment to get there. And movement. Movement is your greatest ally. Even if there's not a lot of concealment, even if there's not a lot of cover. Bullets start flying, you move, and you assess the threat on the move. You don't draw and look for the threat. Then you hear, you know what that sound is? That's what a bullet sounds like when it hits your own flesh. You move. And if you don't have cover, concealment, and movement on your side, you're almost always dead in conflict. Again, because you're not walking around with your hand on the trigger. You're trying to live your life. And if you're going to walk around armed, these are things you need to think about. The next one is the classic situation where you do have some tactical advantage, is home invasion, home burglary, when you happen to be home. 
as long as you know that the person is there before they know that you know they're there. So in home situations, one of the biggest things you really need to do is put awareness on your side. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I have sensors that work with my MERS system that if you enter my backyard, get too close to the back door, get too close to the front door, it sends out an alert throughout the, the radios throughout the house that tells me where you are. And I know somebody's there. It might be the dog, but if it's 2 o'clock in the morning and the dog's sleeping under the bed, I know it's not the dog. That's a huge advantage. The dogs are a huge advantage because they'll bark. I think Matt should probably rip your arm off. But it's not about having a vicious dog. It's not about having a high-end security system. It's about simply putting in enough system so that if somebody gets to a door, you know they're there. My wife, when she was a single mother after her divorce with her first husband, uh, had this apartment and she was afraid at night. And one of the things she did was she set up a dustpan against the front door. And if you open that door, it was going to fall over and make a sound. Low tech, but it works. So at least you know that they're there. And this lady, this is why I'm married to this lady, folks. You want to know about lethal force? She didn't have a gun. She didn't know how to use a gun at the time. She was kind of afraid of guns at the time. You know what she did? She built a defensive tool. She took about, I'd say about a one foot long piece of like one inch chain, put it in a sock and tied a knot in it. Put that inside a second sock, tied, sock, tied another knot in it. And I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to get hit in the head with that. I think it'd go through you like a bullet. But low-tech situations are often all you need. Because remember, killing someone's not as easy as Hollywood has led us to believe, especially if they're aware. So the number one thing with your home defense is to put awareness on your side. I don't care if it's a little four-pound Pomeranian dog. Sure, he's not going to bite anybody, but that yippy-yappy attitude that he has, you know they're there, and they know that you know they're there, and at that situation, unless they're already in the house, they're highly likely to turn tail and go somewhere else. Avoiding the confrontation. Always the best situation. But if they continue to come in, now the odds change. The home is where the homeowner, the honorable person, gains the tactical advantage. You know your home better than anyone else. Especially if it's dark. And you're armed and you know where to take up position and you can be patient and wait. Don't go clearing your house. You're not a SWAT team. And even if you're a member of a SWAT team, your team's not there. You're one person. About the only time you'd have me moving through my home during an invasion would be to make sure that I take a position that would cut the invader off from getting to my son's room so that I could make sure I'm defending both sides of my house. That's it. Something to think about when you go out and buy that new house. There's a tactical advantage. How could you obtain it? on a layout of the house. I'm not a big fan of houses where the master bedroom's downstairs and the kids' bedrooms are all upstairs. I'm really not. I like things kind of put into a, a zone. So that if I can create a bottleneck down to that zone, I have a tactical advantage to anybody that would do them harm. Because if I'm at home alone, maybe just my wife here with me, and we're in the bedroom, the only thing you're going to see when you come around that door is a muzzle flash. And I'm sorry that that's the way that it is, but that's the way that it is. Don't break in my house. I guess the other side of it is by then you'll probably have your uh, lower leg removed by a German shepherd, but you get my point. But if I have other people in the house that I have to defend, and there's somebody in, and I know there's an intruder in there, I can't wait for them because they might not be there for me. We've heard of children being abducted. Folks, you got to get this. you got to understand. If you're going to talk about this, if you're going to think about this, if you're going to plan for this, the people that would do you harm have zero morality. It's one thing when you're hungry to steal a loaf of bread. It's another thing to shove an ice pick in somebody's back because they were wearing the wrong color shirt or walk down the wrong place. Or because you wanted to steal from them and already got what you came for and you kill them just to kill them. That's what people do. That's what real scum do. If you don't have that in your mind, you will not be prepared for the situations you will have to deal with in time. Another thing, this is something that James Yeager and I completely agree on. James and I have some disagreements and I don't know, if you want to listen to the person with more experience, listen to James. I'll concede that. 
But one place where we absolutely agree, handguns are made to be carried when you don't have the option to have a rifle or shotgun. Handguns, this is where we disagree. James says people shot with handguns tend to say, ow, run away, leave me, and, and run away and survive. And people shot with rifles and shotguns die. I'm not quite that big on that. There's a lot of people that have been killed by handguns. A lot of them. But he has a point. The lethality is greater with a rifle or a shotgun. Absolutely. And for that reason, in a situation where somebody wants you dead, you're better off with one. So, when I hear people, and I hear this all the time, because I'm a gun guy, right? I go to sporting goods stores, I'm at Academy Sports and Outdoors, or, or uh, any sporting goods store, or any gun shop, and there's always a guy, there's always a guy buying a gun for home defense. Always. And a lot of times there's a guy with a lady or a guy buying a gun for a lady. They're looking at all these little handguns. And the guy you know, what are you going to use the gun for? And they say home defense. And the guy behind the counter, to his credit, usually starts taking them away from the smaller handguns then. And say, look, if you're not going to carry this gun, you're better off with a larger frame weapon with a little more weight behind it because it'll be easier to shoot. The guy will be like, I want it for my wife. So it's just be smaller for her small hands. But you're like, dude, she's going to have more trouble dealing with recoil than you. A little bit larger frame, less recoil, better to absorb, easier to shoot, more confidence. If you're not carrying it outside, besides the hand grips are generally pretty close to the same size anyway. right? So we're not talking about the guy putting a, a Ruger Red Hawk 44 mag in her hand. We're talking about a full-size 9mm versus a compact 380. But I'm sitting there going, why are you even talking about handguns if it's for home defense? Why not walk back to the rack and pull a decent short-barreled shotgun off and say, this is what you need. If you're not going to walk around with it on your person or in your purse, ladies, you need a shotgun. And a 20-gauge is just fine. There is no distance inside your home where a 20-gauge is not lethal. And I don't care if you have a McMansion. From one end of the hall to the other, in the largest of America's homes, other than like the true crazy, you know, where the average American lives, there is no such thing as out of range for a 20-gauge shotgun. And that goes for you fellas, too. You don't need that 12-gauge. Jaeger and I agree on that, too. He says, if you're good with a 12-gauge, you'll be absolutely awesome with a 20. Nice little compact 20-gauge shotgun. Much better home defense weapon than a handgun. 12-gauge, I'm fine with it. If you want it, that's cool. I'm just telling you what's sufficient. And it absolutely is sufficient. Handguns have no business being used except when you don't have another option. They're, in many ways, limited, not just with lethality, but range. Now, the first time I was confronted with that claim, it was one of my, my friends. And he was telling me how, you know, a handgun is basically a, 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 a 15-meter weapon, 45 feet. And I thought he was nuts. So we went out to a range together, and I set up a paper plate, standard, you know, 8-inch paper plate, on a 100-yard target, pulled out my 45. That's a long shot for a 45. And I have this, this, this way that I can view the sight picture, which is simply rising the, uh, the front sight a little bit higher uh, in the rear sight than you would normally shoot to be dead on. And I know that range well. And I started dropping rounds. And I dropped, I think, six of seven rounds into this paper plate at 100 yards with a 45 auto. I said, look at that. He said, yeah, and how long did it take you to shoot that? And that's not moving. And it's a highly visible, he said, yeah, it's great shooting. But how much quicker could you have done that with a rifle, with a, with a, with a low-power scope? And I had to admit, what he was saying was accurate. That even though you might be able to pull the one shot off at that range, it's inherently limited with range. Where 100 yards with a rifle and a low-power scope is, is a cakewalk if you're well-trained. So the, the handgun doesn't just have a lethality issue, it has a range issue. And that range is much shorter than you think it is when the opponent is using concealment, cover, and movement. Because trust me, if you're going to shoot at a bad guy, he's going to run away. You know, he may not run away to get away, because if you believe he's truly running away to get away, in most places you're not supposed to shoot him. But... He may be running away to take cover to shoot back at you, especially if he's got any training. You know what? Here's the other thing people don't realize. The person I fear the most is the cop 
that was a terrible cop, that was an abusive cop that the system weeded out, threw out, and went and got a job as a mall security guard for a couple weeks, and they got fired for that job because he's the person that should have never become a cop in the first place, but now he has the training. Or the same thing, the soldier. And I'm not putting the soldier and the law enforcement officers down. 90 plus percent, fine, upstanding, honorable people. But you know what? In the most prestigious or supposedly trusted positions in society, the bottom percentage are scum. Don't believe me? Catholic priest. If, I, if you said you can't tell me anything else but just the person's occupation and can you trust the person, I would rank a Catholic priest way at the top of that list. Way, way at the top of that list. But some of them molest children. And if we have scum among Catholic priests, and we have scum, I don't want to be, you know, dissing Catholics. I grew up as a Catholic, so you can't, you know, I can make fun of, I can you know, go on my own there or whatever. But we have ministers that have, that have taken advantage of people in many ways. And in any profession, teachers, alright? So my point is, in any segment of society that's large enough, some portion will be dangerous. And we just had a forum thread where some people were talking about, you know, if there's a total shit at the fan, society breaks down, you know, how would you handle roving gangs, and how would gangs affect your, your preps? You know, what if 20 gangbangers show up at your house and want what you have? And my response... I'd rather 20 gangbangers show up my house wanting what I have, being prepared to defend against that, than four prior service military who have the training but no longer have the honor that came with that training for whatever reason. Because they're more deadly. These are things to think about. Life is not pretty and it's not formulaic. And it doesn't work out like the movies, especially when it comes to life and death situations. But the big thing, handguns are for when you can't have a rifle or a shotgun. Take nothing else away from, the, from this today. Take that away from today. You know, I keep my handgun close to me when I sleep. I also keep a shotgun loaded with buckshot. And if I hear the sensors go off or the dog go off, guess which one I'm going to first. The next one is the knife. I think the knife is the most misunderstood and most overhyped weapon in history. And at the same time, I think it's one of the most deadly weapons in history. Here's the problem with the knife. The knife is a perfect weapon for the person with no morals. Which means it's a terrible weapon for the person with honor. And I know some of you are getting really upset right now. And I want you to hold off and I want you to think before you fire off an angry email to me. Think about this fully in context. The knife is fine as a last-ditch weapon. If you want to carry one, if you want to know how to use it, that's fine. But in reality, you have to be very close to someone to use a knife. If you're not close, you have to get close before you do. Throwing a knife, fine. I'm not buying it in most instances. The person that uses a knife with no morals walks up behind you and slides it into your liver from behind. Walks up behind you and plants it into your throat. You know what we can say about any situation like that? It's not being used in defense. So it's used in offense. Which means that you're not going to come under attack and then use a knife that way. A knife is an assassin's tool. Now, if you are a U.S. Navy SEAL taking out a sentry during the breach of a secured compound, that's an honorable use of a knife that way. I don't think that many of those guys are listening to this show right now. They're out in the world doing their jobs. So let's make sure I take that out. You are going to the post office. You're not using a knife that way unless you're a scumbag, which means you're already under attack before you would have to rely on it, which makes it a terrible weapon for you. Unless you're under the attack of a person who's completely unarmed. It's just not the weapon that people have in their head. That's my only point. I won't beat it up. I think I've said enough on it. The next one is, I, I think this is one that people gloss over and go, oh, I'd do it. I'd do it. Ugh. You are not, you will never know if you're capable of pulling the trigger on another human being until you have to make the choice and either do it or not do it. You don't know. And right now, 
90% of you, 90% of the people that listen to this show are out there going, I'd do it. You don't know that. I'm not saying that, you know, you won't do it. I'm not saying that you wouldn't do it right. I'm not saying that you wouldn't prevail in the situation. I'm simply making a statement that you absolutely cannot answer yet. And you will never answer unless you're ever faced with the horrific choice. And that is you don't know if you will pull the trigger when you have to. Most people will in the end. But some people won't. And there's a reason. And this is the thing I want to finish up with you today because you got to get fantasy out of your head and this is the best way to do it, the best way to understand it. You can't discount the long-term consequences of killing anybody. It could be the most murderous person in the world. It could be some guy that was a serial killer that already killed 15 people. And the next time he tries to kill somebody, he picks the wrong person, you. And you put two in his chest cavity and blow, him out the, blow his heart out of his back. And he's dead. And the newspaper interviews you and says what a hero you are. The governor puts a, a medal on your chest. And your friends admire you. You write a book. You know? Be like Ted Bundy, if you guys remember who he was. If you were the person, he didn't die this way, but if it, if it had been a person like that and you shot him, the person that, that took down Ted Bundy, you know? Your life's better because, I mean, the, the, the most positive output there could ever be. Somebody that murdered a bunch of children and you killed them, and you're a hero for it. There's still a piece of you. Because you're a human with morality that's going to live with the fact that you killed another human being. I want you to understand something. Even soldiers have that feeling. And that's why there's something that's done that I don't think a lot of people are maybe even aware of anymore. It was done at a time when firing squads were commonplace. It was a time where uh, if you had a prisoner that needed to be shot, or if you had a, a soldier who was a traitor... March them out, stand them in front of a wall, you pull a seven-man detail or a five-man detail or whatever, you know, whatever that army had, and you'd line up soldiers and say, ready, aim, fire. Now, in most of those details, not all, but in most of those details, the soldiers did not have their weapon, their personal weapon, or they had given their, their personal weapon over to an armorer, and those seven soldiers one or two of them would have been firing blank rounds. Why would they do such a thing? So that every man could have in his head that it may not have been me. I may have been the one with the blanks, and no one ever knows who has the blanks. Because this is real. Because it does mess with your head. And because there's a difference, even for the soldier, of being in a conflict where somebody's shooting back at you, and being in a situation where someone's standing there helpless and you have to pull the trigger. Well, most of us aren't soldiers. Most of us. Some of us always will be. But most of us aren't. We've never been trained that way. And no matter how much civilian training you take, it's not the same. And if you ever have to take somebody's life, it will stay with you forever. You will not be proud of it. There will be no glory in it. It will be a moment that sticks with you for the rest of your life. And it will conflict with you for the rest of your life. Doesn't mean you don't do it. Doesn't mean when faced with the choice you don't make the right one, which is survive or protect somebody else so that they survive. It just means be aware. And if you are aware of that, what it brings to you is the most important thing an armed person can have. Humility. Humility and humbleness. The warrior that has humility and humbleness on his side survives to fight another day. The arrogant warrior gets himself killed. The warrior who seeks battle gets himself killed. If you seek something long enough, you will find it. If you seek danger, if you seek conflict, it will present itself to you. I'll take it a step further. I believe on some metaphysical level we attract into our lives what we radiate out. And if you seek conflict and violence, you will attract conflict and violence. If you seek peace, you will attract peace. There are 
the rogues in the world that will break that formula. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong situation. But it's the exception, not the rule. In many conflicts, I'd say in the majority of conflicts, both sides played a part in getting the conflict to occur. Ask a police officer, what is your least favorite call to get? Domestic dispute. Very, very dangerous for an officer. You get a call, lady's been beaten up by the guy, cops go out to arrest the guy, lady says, yeah, I want him arrested, eyes are all busted up, they go to arrest the guy while they're hauling the guy out of the house, she jumps on the cop's back, changes her mind, starts clawing his eyes. It happens. Trust me, I know that happens. I've talked to enough cops that have said it's happened. I've seen lower end incidences of it firsthand. Most conflicts involve two parties that know each other. Don't seek conflict. Understanding that there'll be no glory if that ever happens. Having humility and humbleness and integrity and honor will put you in a position where you're most likely never to have to ever use lethal force. But if you ever do, even though you will walk around for the rest of your life with some regret, you'll be able to deal with it. You'll be able to control it. You'll be able to go on with your life and be productive. If you have arrogance, and you ever have to do it, even if you're justified, there's a problem with the arrogance. Once you do it, and once the adrenaline wears off, and once whatever fight you have on your hands afterward, like an overzealous DA that blames you even though you weren't at fault, once all that wears off and you've beaten it, you're allowed to go back to your life. There's a thing about it. The arrogance will fade, and instead of an acceptance of humility and humbleness, it'll run into you like a Mack truck. And it will mess up your life. It will mess up your head. Because you'll be questioning yourself, even though at that point I had no choice. Did I have a choice before that point? Could I have made a different choice? Could this have came out differently? Because the worst scumbag in the world, you know what? They have a mother that will cry when they're dead. And a sister, and a brother, and a father, possibly grandparents, possibly children. And you'll have to live with the fact that those children don't have a father. A guy that might have been scum of the earth, but maybe there was still a chance for his redemption. So he could at least be a father. He's gone now. You had no choice. But without humbleness and humility, you'll always question that. You're going to question it anyway. be nice to have an answer for it, though, wouldn't it? Make it a little bit easier to live your life. So I think I'm about ready to wrap up today. I, I, I wanted to do a show like this because I've never done it before. And I just keep getting more and more questions about firearms. I just got a request uh, the other day to do a podcast interview with a guy who does a show about firearms. And I don't talk about firearms a lot, mainly because I believe there's a lot of other really great sources on firearms. I'm not going to turn, ever turn the Survival Podcast into a rifle review show or anything like that. But occasionally we're going to talk about this, because defending what you have is a huge part of survival, whether it's defending your body or defending your stuff. And there are situations in, 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 in breakdowns where you'll have to do it. But there's a responsibility that goes with it. There's a responsibility, if I'm going to carry the weapon... To know these things. So I also felt there was a responsibility for me, if I'm going to talk about it, that I better tell you these things as well. So that's why I did this today. So what do you do? Well, hopefully you got a lot of what to do out of what I've said so far. But here's the things that you definitely do. One, you definitely get trained. If you're going to carry a weapon, get training with it. Including pepper spray. Don't buy pepper spray and walk around with it and go, I think I know how to use it. Go find a cop. You gotta know somebody that knows a cop somewhere. Don't walk up to a random cop on the street. Hey, buddy, can you show me how this works? Go find a law enforcement officer. They're pretty well trained in how to use pepper spray. And say, look, I'm carrying this for defense. Could you show me the right way to use it? You'll learn some things. You'll learn some things that, like, while you're spraying it, move. So that the attacker can't follow the stream back to you, even though they're blinded. You know? Get trained with everything. Take real world training. Go to a place like Tactical Response with James Jagger. You learn amazing things about yourself when you get training. Learn to train yourself. Become proficient with your weapon. Have intimate knowledge of your weapon. But gain that intimate knowledge with humility and humbleness of a peaceful warrior. Not arrogance. You know, you can't do that. 
You can. It's a free world. You can do whatever you want. I'm telling you the consequences could be extreme for you, both legally and psychologically, because of that choice. The other thing is, if you don't get well trained, and you get into a situation where you have to use lethal force, and you do, and it sort of works out because you're still alive and the attacker's dead, but the attacker's able to kill one person or two people, you're going to question if I was better trained because I have saved those lives as well. It's, it's reality. So training. The next is mental conditioning without fantasization. Mental conditioning is the act of going out and practicing at a target range. So that you are mentally prepared for the mechanics of the action. Fantasy is seeing yourself double tapping multiple attackers in some kind of a movie in your mind. Great way to get killed. Either in a real conflict or mentally to do damage to yourself. Don't do that. Mental conditioning versus fantasy. And I think the last thing that you can do is become really confident who and what you are. That you are a human being and in there lies immense power. And your greatest power is not being able to take life or even preserve it, but being able to live life in a meaningful way. I meant what I said about we attract what we send out as intentions. That is a fundamental law. And if you look at this show itself, if you look at the moderators on my forum, if you look at the forum members, if you look at the audience that we have, if you look at the things that have occurred, you can see it in action. Not just my intentions, but the intentions of the audience have attracted others just like us. We've become an amazing community because of this universal law. Well, it works at the individual level as well. And if you live a life based on living life, if you live a life based on morality and integrity, sure, there are things that can come in and disrupt that. But overall, that's what you'll attract. And you'll be centered. And if you ever have to make a horrible choice, you'll be able to not only make it and act on it effectively in time for it to matter, but you'll be able to live with the aftermath. So the biggest advice I can give you today is how you're going to live going forward. Live empowered. Understand, there is more power in knowing how to heal than how to harm. The most admired people in the world are not people that took life. In spite of all the pomp and circumstance around the glory of war, the most admired people in the world are the people that saved life and gave life. The most admired people in the world are the people that reached in to horrible situations and made them even 1% better because they cared enough to try. That person when sufficiently armed and trained, is the warrior that will come out on top in most situations. There's always, always, always the potential to lose. Whether it's in a conflict or whether it's in life in general, there's always the potential to lose. You can lose because you get in your car today and you're driving down the road and some guy driving a 10-ton raw collar loses his brakes and smashes your car and you're dead. And if that can happen to you, sure. You can be well-armed and well-trained and somebody walks into a, a restaurant to start shooting and you just happen to be the first one they shoot. There's always the oddball. We can't live that way. Just like we can't plan solely for the, the Hollywood disaster. We can't freak out and worry that the disaster that's going to happen tomorrow is going to be a, an earth-killing asteroid. We plan for the most likely events and we live our life in an empowered way. You do the same thing when it comes to being armed and ready to use lethal force. And anything less is not worthy of you. That's the biggest thing I can tell you as I, as I finish up today. Don't do these things because I tell you to. Don't do these things because I think I'm right. Do these things because you're worthy of them in your life. You're worthy of the right to self-defense. That's why our, our forefathers wrote it into paper with pen and ink and made sure that even hundreds of years after they were here, that when people wanted to take it from you, it would be damn hard for them to do it. So you're worthy of that, but you're worthy of more. 
You're worthy of having the big stick, and you're worthy of absolutely never having to pull it out and hit somebody over the head with it. You're worthy of a calm, peaceful, prosperous life. And because you're worthy of it, God forbid should anybody ever try to take it away from you. You are justified in defending it, and claiming it, and keeping it. That's power. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life and keep it if times get tough or even if they don't. Another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.